Um, if you would uh, like to open your Bibles, please, um, to Job chapter 8. Uh, just while you're doing that, um, you'll notice, uh, as my son Ben was saying um, earlier in the children's talk, um, the song that we just sung was actually uh, inspired by a letter uh, written by John Newton in 1767. And this is what he said in his letter. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you? But let not all, but let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Uh, as I've gotten to know uh, the congregation here at Cornerstone, um, I think it's fair to say that everybody is suffering in one degree or another. Uh, we can all relate to Job and his experiences, whether it be singleness, uh, whether it be estrangement from family or friends, whether it be childlessness. We all struggle, don't we, uh, in this journey of faith. Um, I know some of our own members are, are struggling with severe illness, like our dear John and Claire Short, who are watching this online. We all wrestle. And so how we need God's word today, particularly from the book of Job. Before I read it to us, I'm going to pray. I'm going to specifically remember John and Claire this morning, um, as well as others like Catherine who have been sick. Um, let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can meet together this morning as your people. We thank you that while our sins are many, your mercies are more. Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient to save. And Lord, we remember this morning our dear brother and sister John and Claire, our sister Catherine who's been sick this week. And Lord, you know the trials and turmoils of each one of our hearts whether that be singleness, whether that be childlessness, Lord, whether that be a trial or suffering of any kind, Lord, may, to know, may today we know that despite our circumstances, you love us and that you will never let us go. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we come to look at your word now. We pray that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit that you would open our ears and that we would hear your voice speaking to, to us through your word. And we pray that you would be with me, that both what I say and how I say it would bring you glory and would bring everyone here edification and strengthening. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read from Job chapter 8, the whole chapter, and starting at verse 1, and this is God's word. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure, and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble 
so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing, growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. He is like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its roots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. When I was a young student minister, I did a country placement for about a month or so in outback uh, or sort of really the far north coast of New South Wales. The minister that I was working under and that was sort of training me to be a younger minister told me a funny story about what happened to he and his wife when they were first married. His wife, wanting to make a great impression on her new husband, was a very, very good cook, but she had this very peculiar way of cooking roasts. And that is she would cut off either end of the roast, to the left or to the right, so that the meat was strangely exposed. It wasn't a big problem or anything, and he didn't want to complain. But one day, he plucked up the courage to ask her, why? Why, honey, do you do this strange thing with the roast? She says, oh, I don't really know. That was just the way my mum taught me. <clears throat> they both had a bit of a chuckle because it was a bit of an odd thing to do, and his wife was intrigued, though. She thought, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Why do I cut off the roast? Because we have these two ends left over. So she called her mum to understand what was her unique approach to cooking roast. Significantly, her mum responded in exactly the same way. Oh, I don't know, dear. That's the way your, my mum always taught me. You're right, it doesn't really make sense. But she always was most insistent that you cut off the ends of either end of the meat, right or to the left, before you put it in the oven. Well, now they were all really interested as to what might be the secret ingredient to cooking roast this way. And so they went and visited um, her grandmother, uh, who was still alive, quite elderly by this stage, and living in a retirement home. When they explained the situation to um, this woman, uh, her nan had a really good chuckle. She goes, why are you still doing that? That just makes the meat dried out and no good. 
I only cut off the ends because your father was so stingy that he bought me this really little oven and the roast would never fit. <laughs> now, we can all laugh at scenarios like that. But unfortunately, we can make the same mistake spiritually. It's a good example of what I call the tradition trap. And it's an error that is really, really easy to fall into. Where we keep doing the same things like we've always done, because it was done that way in the past, but it doesn't make sense to keep on doing them the same way today. And this, can I just say, was the underlying problem with Bildad that we just read. As you all know, Job had three friends, and I use that term loosely, who tried to comfort him in his suffering. Eliaphaz, Bildad and Zophar. They're all pretty similar in what they say, but they're also very different in terms of how they say it. They're similar in that they all believe that Job's suffering is a result of his sin. It's what scholars have referred to as a transactional theology, a worldview where the righteous are always rewarded and the wicked or the, or the godless are always punished. Job's three friends are different to one another as well. And to summarise their differences, think of them like this. Eliaphaz the eloquent, Bildad the brutal, and Zophar the zealot. Eliaphaz the eloquent, Bildad the brutal, and Zophar the zealot. That's a pretty basic way to also summarising the three different approaches that each one of these men take. But they all essentially have the same false understanding about Job's situation and why he's suffering. And as we'll see today from Job chapter 8, they make this mistake in four distinct ways. That is a false premise in verses 1 to 7, a false authority in verses 8 to 10, a couple of false analogies in 11 to 19, and then finally, a false hope in verses 20 to 22. You'll see this on the inside of your orders of service if you want to take notes. Now, as I said last week, rarely do you find a book in the Bible which devotes so much space to speeches which are clearly wrong. So much divine revelation of actually seeing a crooked stick of which you can lay a straight one beside it. And we know that they're false because of what the Lord himself says in verse 7 of chapter 42. You might want to turn up and have a look at this. Um, it's where, they, where the Lord himself says, they haven't spoken what is right of him. And as a result, Job has to make atonement for them. That's how serious their sin is. And so we have to be, as the reader, really careful as we read through the book of Job to carefully pick out the truth from the error. Because here's the problem, as we've been seeing, they're not completely wrong. In fact, like a good counterfeit note, there's a lot of truth mixed in with the error, with the falsehood. Because sometimes what they say sounds really close to the truth, doesn't it? Chapter uh, 8 opens then with Bildad expressing a false premise. And that is, Job is only suffering because he has sinned. Bildad's words, though, are both as blunt 
as they are brutal. Especially when you remember what Job has just endured. For not only is he himself close to death, with little hope of what it seems for recovery, right? As we've been looking at, they've come and they're silent for a week, not saying anything good or bad, because he literally has one foot in the grave and they're mourning as if they are at a funeral. It looks like he won't recover. He's lost all of his wealth, and in particular, notice this, his ten children were all killed, remember, by a great wind that struck the four corners of the house while they were inside feasting, and they all died in a single day. Now, that alone is an unspeakable tragedy, isn't it? For any of you who here who've had the horror of losing a child or maybe even a grandchild or a spouse, you'll know how incredibly painful that is. And yet look at what Bildad says to Job in verse 2. He makes a direct allusion to that event to brutally bring home the false premise that he is suffering basically, not as basically, essentially because he sinned. Bildad says, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. The same kind of blustering wind which destroyed his family. That's what Bildad says Job's words are like. What's more, his children died clearly because, Bildad says, they deserved it. Verse 4, when your children sinned against him, he, that's God, gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Wow. What a brutal thing to say, especially to someone who is grieving. And it's not only Bildad who does this, but the next three uh, speeches, each one of the friends starts with the same kind of slur. They call Job in some way or another a windbag, full of a mighty wind. In fact, from here on in, opening insults will characterise each one of the friend's speeches. They're so zealous for the truth, but so lacking in kindness. And instead of offering him kindness and compassion, each one of Job's friends is just so mean and so cruel. What we have to keep in mind, though, is that there is all, not only no evidence that Job sinned, but I think no evidence at all that any of his children sinned. In fact, the text of Scripture goes out of its way to say that Job would regularly get up early in the morning to sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them just in case they had sinned by cursing God in their hearts, to purify them after a period of feasting had run its course just in case they had done something wrong. But there was no evidence that they had. And so Job was being extra diligent in protecting them as a kind of really earthly mediator, turning away God's anger and his wrath. To give you a sense of Job's, oh, sorry, Bildad's insensitivity, though, let me, let me cautiously use an analogy, which I'm actually quite nervous about using. I say that because I know that while this happened many years ago, it's still a very sensitive topic and painful Thing even to mention here, especially here in Hobart. But just imagine if somebody 
said that all of those murdered or maimed in the Port Arthur massacre were guilty of sin. That somehow or other, they deserved it. It's an unspeakable evil, isn't it? Almost worse than the murders themselves. To actually say that the people who were innocently mowed down were guilty. But that's what Bildad is saying to Job. You've lost your ten children. You've lost them in a single day. You've lost all your wealth. You've lost all of your health. But you, and especially they, deserved it. He's point blank saying that his children are dead because God has punished them. What's more, Bildad goes on to say that the reason why Job himself is suffering is because he also sinned. What Bildad says in verse 6 is really quite slippery. So you have to pay careful attention to his words and his language because he calls on Job to be both pure and upright. Now, we know from the opening verse of the book of Job that Job was blameless and upright, which means that Job was a man of integrity. It doesn't mean that Job was sinless. Remember, this is what Eliphaz accused Job of claiming to be in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? But neither Job nor the author of the book claimed that Job was righteous or pure in the sense of being without sin. Verse 1 of chapter 1 simply says that Job was upright and blameless. Now, that's a really important distinction. You might think I'm being a bit pedantic, but as you'll quickly see, I'm not. For at the end of chapter 7, even Job himself, as blameless and an upright man, acknowledges that he is guilty of offending God and sinning. Bildad, though, mixes these two truths together and in so doing, he confuses them. And he says to Job in verse 6, if you are pure and blameless, then even now, even when Job has one foot in the grave, God will rouse himself and he will restore you to full health. Significantly, we know that this is precisely what the Lord will do in the end. Not because Job is completely pure and without sin, but because, verse 6 of chapter 42, Job actually repents of the things that he has said. Job is restored, though, by God's grace, and significantly, it's Bildad and his two friends which are rebuked. And that brings us to the heart of Bildad's error. And that is, he's operating out of a false authority. Take a careful look again at what he says in verses 8 to 10. Every one of Job's friends has this transactional theology, but significantly, each one is operating out of a different mode of authority, which causes them in practice to lean on their own understanding. For Eliphaz... It was his experience. Remember, he had this supernatural vision of a ghost that appeared to him and told him that this was how the Lord works. For Zophar, it will be his own reasoning, observation and learning. But for Bildad, it's quite simply tradition. It's what most people have thought and taught 
throughout the ages and therefore it must be true. Or as a Christian brother of, my friend, of mine used to say, a million blowflies can't be wrong. <laughs> as he says in verse 8, ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth understanding? Now, there's a famous illustration of this type of idea which I'm telling you about called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And it's this basic drawing. It sounds all highfalutin and intellectual. It's really not. It's pretty simple. It's just this basic quadrilateral shape which obviously has four sides. One is marked reason. The other side is marked experience. The other side is marked tradition. And then the final side is marked scripture or the Bible. The point of the illustration, though, when it comes to resolving an issue about suffering or maybe a controversial ethical issue of the day or maybe even a point of doctrine, one of those four sides is always going to function as your authority. Now, let me uh, take a really controversial issue to show you what I mean. What do you think about the issue of women preaching? See, I told you this would be controversial. <laughs> but the issue has to be controversial to reveal which side of the quadrilateral you are relying on. Let me give you an example. Some people say, well, and you probably have heard this, well, I think it's only fair that women today are much uh, should preach because women today are much more educated than they were in the past. And that's a really good example of relying on your reason or your logic. Others might say, well, I heard a woman preach in church once and it was a really lovely message and was quite inspiring. It's an argument from the quadrilateral based on your experience. Others will say women ministers have been around for a while now and there is evidence, albeit very small, that women have preached from time to time in the history of the church. And that's Bildad's approach, which is referring back to tradition. And then there's the final approach, which just simply says this. But what does the word of God say? And people look up the pertinent passages in the Bible and they base their conclusion on God's word. The tradition trap was one of the false assumptions which the Pharisees had made in Jesus' day. And it's always with us. As Jesus, quoting from, notice the prophet Isaiah, there's a problem in Isaiah's day as well, says in Mark 7, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Can you see how deceptive this type of approach is? So Bildad is operating out of a false premise, but it's based on a false authority, all of which leads him to making a false analogy. There's actually not just one false analogy here, but two. The first is in verses 11 to 15, and it's about a dried up weed. Uh, and the second is in verses 16 to 19, and it concerns a well-watered plant. Both analogies, though, are based on a false understanding that the Lord relates to us just as he does to useless weeds or plants. 
that people are no more significant, no more important than the plants of the earth. It's a similar, it's a similar to the analogy Eliphaz makes, remember, back in chapter 4, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, when he said this, God places no trust in his servants and that we are crushed more readily than a moth. Do you remember the fly or the moth you killed this week? No. Well, that's exactly God's perspective on you, Eliphaz says. You are no more significant, no more important than a bug. That, once again, is a transactional, is this transactional law at work in the world that the righteous are always rewarded and that the wicked are always punished. Now, here's where it becomes a counterfeit. That is true normally. God's word does say that if you live his way, things will go well, and that if you follow the other way, it will normally go bad. But it's not always the case. Even more significantly, about uh, Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar's uh, perspective, is that they're all saying that God doesn't care about the people that he makes. That's not true. God has put an incredible amount of trust in Job. That those who are suffering are just like a useless reed which dries up and has no water. So to everyone who is godless will automatically perish. Alternatively, the godless person is like a well-watered plant that grows up in the rock and then suddenly is uprooted. Now, if you're following along in the study questions this week, I'm sorry for the confusion around my questions this week. You might have asked yourself, how is this second analogy positive while the first one is negative? I think they're both actually saying the same thing. In this second example, judgment happens just like it does to a healthy plant that is uprooted. Bildad is saying that just like a plant, no one is going to remember you, Job, when you're gone. You may have sprung up, you may have been in the rocks, you may have been strong for a while, but you know what? God's going to snap you up, you're going to be gone, and another plant's going to take your place. There's just not an ounce of kindness in these guys, is there? There'll be no trace or legacy of anything positive that you've left behind, Job, Bildad says, to show that you were even here. Now, you really have to marvel at how brutal Bildad is to Job, don't you? But sadly, what people say to us when we are suffering can often be more painful than the trial itself. And this is particularly the case for Job when you remember how wealthy and famous the Bible tells us he was. You only have to go on for a little while, brothers and sisters, don't you? To remember the words that people say to you when you were down. And the incredible temptation at that point is to give up to give up on church, to give up on the faith maybe even because of some mean-spirited, cruel thing that somebody has said. But you know what? You can take heart and be encouraged today because the same kind of thing happened to Job. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. That's God's assessment. And yet here is Bildad saying that, you know what, Job? No one is going to remember you when you're gone. You're just like a prosperous plant that has been uprooted and thrown away. It's not only incredibly cruel, it's obviously false because you're all here this morning hearing about Job. You're all here 
hearing about he was the greatest man of the Middle East. You're here actually with him as an example and model to follow of perseverance and patience, especially in the heart of suffering. But if you turn over to Psalm 73 for a minute with me, I want to prove to you as conclusively as I can why Bildad is so wrong. Psalm 73, um, and it's a crucial text of Scripture when refuting this false teaching, and it is that, this false teaching of a transactional theology. Because God's word is itself really clear that this is not the way that he always relates to those whom he has made. We're going to slow down a little bit and read the first 12 verses because they build a picture of why this transactional view of the world is so false. You might like to take the time later on to meditate on these verses and consider more what they have to say. Okay then, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are, they are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and they drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Isn't that an amazing description of what the godless, wicked, proud person is like who even shakes his fist at heaven and says, does God look at me and do anything about it? I'm the king of the world. So much for the view that the righteous are always rewarded and that the wicked are always punished. Hey, you only have to live on earth a little while to realise that you often see this transactional theology occurring in reverse. At least for now. Because just take a look at what Asaph says in verses 13 to 17. For you have to keep in mind the big picture. A day of judgment is coming where everything will be put right, but we can't get ahead of ourselves and expect for that judgment to always occur in the here and now. The psalmist says in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocent. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed you. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. You see, we can only perceive the world aright when we see things from God's eternal perspective. We enter his holy temple and we hear him speaking to us through his inspired word. But you don't listen to reason necessarily or make that your authority or your experience or let alone your tradition, but you hear the word of God. You hear revelation. Just imagine how Bildad's understanding of Job's situation would have changed 
if Bildad had have been privileged to witness the divine supernatural events which occurred in heaven in chapters 1 and 2. If he had been exposed to that revelation, he would have seen reality for how it truly is. His wrong views of God and how he relates to his image bearers would have been completely exposed for the falsehoods that they are. And in particular, he wouldn't have dared to express the false hope that he does in verses 20 and 22. Because based on this false premise, his false authority and his false understanding of the world or the analogies that he thinks are contained therein, he says to Job that if he would only repent, then Satan, I mean, sorry, Bildad meant God, would give him all the kingdoms of the world. That's what Satan said to Jesus, didn't he, in the wilderness. His mouth would again be filled with laughter and his lips with shouts of joy. His enemies would be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked would be no more. Because verse 20, God would never reject a blameless man, would he? Would he? As we've been seeing each and every week, though, the answer to that question is ironically, yes. Yes, God does sometimes reject a blameless man because the book of Job ultimately points us to Jesus. The only man who was completely without sin and yet suffered in our place. Who was betrayed by wicked men like Judas, according to the Lord's own purpose and foreknowledge. None of it took God by surprise. There's a brilliant passage in Isaiah 53, which every Christian should at least be familiar with, or even better, know off by heart. It's the one that says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, Yet, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see... Jesus suffered in our place, taking upon himself the punishment for the sins which we deserved. And he was blameless. He had done nothing wrong. Sometimes God does reject a blameless man. And the good news is we can be completely forgiven and cleansed when we put our faith in him. This is the gospel. This is the centre of our faith. When we trust in his death and his resurrection... Because Jesus is the perfect and atoning sacrifice. This is why Isaiah goes on to say this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then it says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. As we are seeing through the example of Job, sometimes the righteous suffer. As Ben reminded us all in the children's talk, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Which means what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ 
is absolutely integral to God's plan of salvation. Now, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, why don't you put your trust in him now? Turn from sin. Turn from relying on your own good works and trust in what Christ has done for you. Come to Jesus and be forgiven, receiving the free gift of eternal life. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say that the best way to see that a stick is crooked is to lay a straight one beside it. When you come to church each week, I hope that you see always the straight stick of the gospel. The good news of Jesus' victory over sin and death. But as we make our way through the book of Job, there are a whole bunch of crooked sticks that we need to be aware of and that we need to compare. Perspectives about God and how he relates to us in the world which we need to critique. You know, I think we need to beware most of all today, friends, of the tradition trap. Of those who would give human tradition more weight than the authority of God's word. Ways of thinking which might seem reasonable, maybe with Job's friends, even religious, but take us away from what God actually commands. Because when we hold to an exclusively transactional view of God, it's not only false, but it actually hinders us from showing any genuine love or kindness to one another. That's the problem. To both comfort those who are suffering and to be comforted when we ourselves are in pain. The truth of the gospel then cures us of that kind of legalistic transactional thinking. It reveals to us that we are loved and that we are noticed more than we could ever know or imagine. That while our sins are many, his mercies will always be more. For in Jesus we are accepted and forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us through it this morning. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, that we would rest in the gospel, that you would help each and every one of us know how much we are loved in Jesus, that his atonement has paid the penalty for our sin once and for all, that while our sins, they might be many, and they are many, your mercy is always more. Lord, thank you for speaking to us today. We pray that we would go out in the assurance of your love, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.